Happy Sabbath, everyone. Um, I thoroughly uh, enjoyed this morning's discussion on, on Sabbath School. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, I, uh, I believe that we are living in a time where, um, as a people, we need to know what we believe, why we believe it, and we need to have the right spirit to share it. And so uh, I'm excited because the message today um, is entitled End Time Dilutions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us as we open your word. We pray that you give us understanding, Lord. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and that your people would listen, would hear, would understand. Lord, you say as many as you love, you rebuke and chasten, Lord. Well, prepare us, soften our hearts is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. End time dilutions. Manuscript releases uh, 87. This is written in 1898. And the statement says, there is a famine in the world for the true word. How few there are who preach the gospel undiluted by human tradition. That is our goal here today. That should be our goal at all times. To share an undiluted gospel to a world that is in need. It is crucial that we share a gospel that has not been watered down, whose strength has not been diminished by human traditions. I want to share a few verses with you as we lay the foundation here. Revelation 21 and verse 5, the Bible says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I want to pause for a second and encourage you with the idea that God's words are faithful. Amen, if you catch that. Amen, if you understand and agree that the words of God, that the word of God is faithful. Amen, amen, amen. I want you to notice again, Titus 1 verse 9. The Bible says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able to buy sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. We are seeing in these two verses that the word of God is faithful, faithful. I like depending upon things that are faithful because they will never let you down. The word of God is faithful. Say it again. The word of God is faithful. Amen, amen, amen. But I want you to notice something else about the word of God. Jeremiah 20, verse 9, the Bible says here, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. The Bible lets us know that God's word is not only faithful, but it is also like a fire in the bones. God's word is a fire. Amen, amen. This is why one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jeremiah 23, 29. And by the way, if any of you have ever emailed me at a burning hammer, this is where my email comes from. Jeremiah 23, 29. It says, is not my word like as a fire? saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Listen to me. God's word is like a fire. God's word is faithful. God's word is trustworthy. And we are to preach that word undiluted. Notice again with me, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and, and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
This is everything the word of God does and is. It is faithful. It is like a fire. And the word of God penetrates our consciences. The word of God is a discerner of thoughts. It is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen, amen. Notice again with me, Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let me suggest to you that the word of God is our friend. The word of God is our friend. The word of God is our faithful friend. Our faithful friend who will never forsake us or leave us. Our faithful friend who, yes, even though wounds us at times, is wounding us for our own good. The word of God is that faithful friend. Notice again with me. John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Let me jump back for a second. You see, when the Bible speaks of the word being like a fire, I want you to understand, or a light, this word here, light, in John three nineteen, is the Greek word phos, and it means fire. So this is the condemnation that light or fire is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light or fire because their deeds were evil. Understand that fire is a source of light. So the word of God is our faithful friend who has come into the world not to condemn, but to save. But I want you to understand our response to the word of God, if we are living in darkness, is that we hate the light. We hate the fire. We don't like the fire. We don't like the word. So the Bible says this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Beloved, I want you to understand the word is like a faithful friend. The word is like a fire that sheds light on us, revealing our inner thoughts. If we love darkness and do darkness, we end up hating the light. We end up hating the fire. Every time we see the light, every time we hear the light, it convicts us, but it convicts us to save us. It brings conviction upon us, not to condemn, but to save us. So if we're on the wrong path, our faithful friend, the word of God is going to try to minister to us. But if we can't stand the light, what do we do? We try to get rid of it. If we can't stand the fire, what do we do? We try to get rid of it. Why? Because every time we see the light, every time we see the fire, it brings mental condemnation. Amen if you're following me so far. Now I'm going to share a story with you. And you might wonder, Pastor, how in the world did we just go from what you were just saying to this story? But I need you to follow this carefully. We're going to go to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. The Bible says here, it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman and said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her and came in unto her and lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house. So David ends up 
sleeping with this man's wife. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I'm with child. And David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. So Uriah is one of David's soldiers. The Bible says, and David said to Uriah, go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah, watch this, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his own house. Now, this is deep, guys. Uriah comes home from the battlefield because David summons him. You get the idea, right? David knows that Bathsheba is pregnant. So he wants Uriah to go and be with his wife so that he can cover his sin. Yeah, this is Uriah's child. I brought Uriah home and Uriah went. But Uriah does not do that. Verse 10, when they had told David, saying Uriah went not down unto his house, but instead, remember what Uriah did? He slept at the door of David. David said unto Uriah, camest thou not from thy journey? Why did not thou go down to thine house? Watch this answer, guys. And Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Now, here's my question to you. Why is Uriah not doing this thing? The answer is, how can I go be with my wife when the army is in battle like David. Listen, man, I am your faithful friend. I am your faithful friend. David, my focus is on your mission, is on God's mission. Uriah is a faithful friend to David. And so, verse 12, David said to Uriah, tarry here today also and tomorrow, and I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him and made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house again, even in Uriah's drunken state. He's like, I'm staying faithful to David. We're in battle. I'm not going into my, I'm not going to go enjoy myself while my brothers are out on the battlefield. That's a faithful soldier, man. That's a faithful friend. Now, I know you're wondering, Pastor, the sermon of your title and what you're talking about right now, what in the world? Follow, follow. It came to pass in the morning. David is trying to ease his conscience. And every time he sees Uriah, his conscience is convicting him. And when he finally realizes that Uriah will not be unfaithful to him. Notice what he does. It came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set ye Uriah in the front of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. Mm. Mm -mm. I need y'all to catch this. You see, there's something here I want you to understand. David had to get rid of of Uriah because of his affair with Bathsheba. So now he's going to, whatever he needs to do to clear his conscience, he's going to do that. 
Are you ready for this? The name Uriah or Uriah, it means fire of God. <laughs> Uriah or Uriah, fire of God. David. To ease his conscience because of his adulterous affair is trying to get rid of the fire of God. Beloved, how many times do we in our own walk with God because the word of God, the fire of God brings conviction to us. We would rather get rid of the word of God. Let me say it this way. It is easier to get rid of my enemy than it is to deal with the inner me. Yeah, let me say it again. It is easier to get rid of my enemy than to deal with my inner me. Every time David sees Uriah, conviction sets in and he's like, mm, uh, how do I get rid of him? How do I, how do I remove him from my sight to ease my conscience? I'm going somewhere with this. How often do we do the same thing with the word of God? We would rather get rid of it when the fire of God gets too close and the light is shining and we don't like what we see in ourselves. We don't like conviction to set in. You see, we don't like to be convicts. Nobody wants to be a convict. What is a convict? A convict is someone who is declared to be guilty of a criminal offense by the verdict of a jury or the decision of a judge in a court of law. Nobody likes to admit that they are a convict. You see, Uriah, fire of God, takes on special significance when it comes to seventh day Adventist, trust me guys, I'm building up, okay? I need you to follow this carefully. You see, in Matthew 3 and verse 11, John the Baptist, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So, so God was going to send his fire to us to be our faithful friend. I hope you're following what I'm saying. The word of God, the Holy Spirit, it is the Uriah of God, if you will. It is the spirit of God sent to us now. Now notice why this is important to Seventh-day Adventists because in Revelation 19.10, the Bible says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Catch this, guys. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, then we need to ask, what is the spirit of prophecy? According to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we are told we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Beloved, the spirit of prophecy or prophecy as a whole has been given to us to guide us in dark times. Prophecy has been given to us as our friend to guide us through dark times, to guide us in times where other people can't see what's going on. 
So this is why the Bible says that it has been given unto us as a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So let me break it down for you, beloved. The spirit of prophecy is the same thing as the Holy Ghost. The spirit of prophecy is the same thing as the Holy Ghost. And what did Jesus say about the Holy Ghost, the fire of God? He says in John 16, 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth or the fire of Jah, Uriah, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, that's my addition, by the way, in parentheses, just so that you know, that's not, <laughs> that's my addition there. How be when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. So let's get this straight now. God has given his SDA church, the spirit of prophecy as a faithful friend, a Uriah, if you will. But could it be, could it be that we have somehow gotten to the place where we are trying to, in a roundabout way, get rid of the spirit of prophecy Because of certain things that have happened. Now, no one will come out and say, yeah, I'm trying to get rid of the spirit of prophecy. We wouldn't do that. That would be foolish. But beloved, let me suggest to you that one of Satan's final attacks upon God's church is to attack the spirit of prophecy. And I need you to understand that in a larger context because the spirit of prophecy represents the Holy Spirit, which was designed to guide us into all truth and to guide us through dark times. See, let me break it down for you. In 1 John 1, 5, the Bible says, reads here from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings. Stop right there. I'm going to say it this way. Through Christ, we have become David's. Come on. Amen if you're following me. Through Christ, we have become David's. Symbolically, kings. Amen? Now, does God give advice to kings in the word of God? Does God give advice to kings in the word of God? Yes, he does. Here's one advice he gives to kings. Notice Proverbs 31, verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. What, my son, and what the son of my womb, give not. Notice verse 3. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Hmm. So God made us kings and he warns that kings should not drink wine nor give their strength unto women. This is symbolic language here. It's a prophecy for kings. <laughs> Let me break this down a little bit further for you. See, in Proverbs 23, verse 29, the Bible says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has babblings, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. That's alcoholic wine. 
Verse 31, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea and thou shalt lieth upon the top of a mass. They have stricken me, thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will yet seek it again. You see, beloved, when kings drink mixed wine, listen to me. When kings drink mixed wine, that is wine mingled with truth and error, wine that doesn't come from our own sources. When kings drink mixed wine, they will eventually behold strange women. You remember the story of David, right? David beheld a woman that did not belong to him. And as a result of him doing this, he eventually turned against Uriah. Turned against Uriah. Turned against the fire of God. Why? Because, the, because of his adulterous relationship with a strange woman. I hope you catch where I'm going with this. Because Revelation 17, 1 and 2, the Bible tells us, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, come hither and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Please notice that the kings of the earth commit fornication with this woman, but the kings of God should not. However, might I suggest to you that when God's kings begin to mimic and to imbibe in the wine and the teachings and the, the concepts of mystery Babylon that we are in fact entering into an adulterous relationship which will risk, which will bring into jeopardy our relationship with the fire of God or the spirit of prophecy. The Bible says in verse three, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit up on a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Beloved, this woman... Please note this point carefully. This woman called Mystery Babylon is described in Revelation chapter 13 as a combination of the first beast from the sea and the second beast from the earth. This is a combination of mother and daughters. And they are harlots. And they offer wine. And the kings of the earth commit fornication with these harlots through wine. And God's kings are not supposed to partake of that wine. Please understand this. I'm about to show you something very important. So, in 2007, mark the day, the year, a book was published. This book was entitled, Could It Really Happen? It's published by Pacific Press. And here's what I'm going to tell you. This book 
published in 2007, explained the prophecy of Revelation chapter 13. It is an Adventist book. And I will tell you that that book and the contents of that book could not be published today because it would be considered political. You guys, when this book, some of you have this book. I got it right here. It is a real book in case you don't believe me. This book written in 2007, it was a purely prophetical book. It's what we've been teaching for over 150 years. But today, this book would be considered political. Allow me to break it down for you. I'm just going to go through this very quickly. I want you to see some of the chapters in this book. The rise of the conservative movement in America. That's chapter 11 of the book entitled, Could It Really Happen in America? Sunday Laws, etc. Could it really, published by Pacific Press. The rise of, conserv of the conservative movement in America. Why could we not publish this book today? Why would so many look at this book today and say, I'm not reading it because it's political? I know why. Because our message has been diluted because of people's love for politics. Right there, guys. The rise of the conservative movement in America. Let's move on. Notice some of the subheadings. The moral majority. What? Pastor, you mean you weren't making this up? You mean this isn't some new gospel? You guys, months ago, I brought people on. Months ago, I gave a sermon talking about how abortion was a Trojan horse being used by the religious right not intentionally, they didn't think of it like that, but being used by the religious right to gather together this moral majority. Here it is, 2007, nobody raised an alarm. Nobody said, how could you say that? Of course, yeah, I'm against abortion. That's not the issue here though, guys. <laughs> That's not the issue here. The issue here is that this was common knowledge in 2007 that the moral majority were using certain issues for a purpose that we understood as having prophetic implication. But there's more. Check this out. He actually mentions Ronald Reagan. Look at the top here. I don't know if you can see that. Just if you can't see it, when you go back and watch this video again, or better yet, just buy the book. Just buy the book. Just get, just get it. There it is. Ronald Reagan. In 2007, it was not a problem for an Adventist to talk about Ronald Reagan. Why? Because we weren't caught up politically the way we are now. We understood, oh yeah, he's talking about a political figure, but we're dealing with prophecy here. No big deal. We could handle Uriah. We could handle the word of God. We could handle the spirit of prophecy. It was no big deal. In this book, he talks about how, you remember some time ago, we, I preached about how issue of school segregation helped to bring together the religious right because they were furious that blacks and whites were integrating. And notice, I just, I, I had to underline this because I forgot about this book till some one of my friends on Facebook brought this up. And I was like, wait a minute, I got this book. And I went back and I started underlining stuff. I was like, what in the world? Caucasian parents were furious 
They didn't want their child, their children bust out of their school districts merely to achieve racial balance. White Southerners who still held many of their prejudices against blacks felt particularly incensed. The result was a widespread parochial school movement among evangelical Protestants. Marvin Moore, could it happen here in America? 2007, could not be published today because it would be seen as divisive and political. How in the world did we get here? Let's keep moving. Next chapter, the rise of the religious right in America. Whoa, 2007, not seen as political at all. He talks about Pat Robertson. He talks about the Christian coalition. Chapter 13, the success of the religious right in America. The religious right solution. Hmm. He has a whole section on abortion in 2007. Wasn't considered political. This was prophecy. This was prophecy. Wait a minute. Notice how he ends one of his sections. I, I need y'all to catch this because for some reason, we now doubt whether it is the religious right, the Christian element of America that is going to actually be the fulfillment of Revelation 13. Let me just read to you what was written in 2007. 100 years ago, our non-Adventist critics claimed that for the United States to renounce its historical support of religious freedom would require a great miracle, a greater miracle than for God to grow a giant oak in an instant. Watch this. But religious conservatives gained tremendous political power in the United States during the last quarter of the 20th century and the early years of the 21st century. Pat Robinson said, we want freedom in this country and we want power. He meant that religious right conservatives want freedom and power to enact their brand of religion into law. And then he goes on to say, I propose that the present demand by America's religious right conservatives to void church and state separation and to gut the Supreme Court of its authority to consider cases dealing with religion is leading this country toward a direct fulfillment of the Adventist interpretation. of the intolerant land beast of Revelation 13. You guys, in 2007, this was the Adventist interpretation. He goes on to say, I am sure there are those who will argue that the Adventist interpretation of Revelation 13 is incorrect. They can no longer argue that this is unrealistic. Beloved, I need you to understand. Somehow, we know many of our leading people are no longer teaching this. Many, many prominent people are, no, well, how do you know? Come on, guys, listen, party switching. Another important change occurred in the 1980s. Catholics began switching their votes from the Democratic to the Republican Party. This would be considered hate speech among some Adventists today. How dare you? You're talking about politics. Just preach the gospel. He has a section in here on the 2004 election. The Catholic voter getting the nation back to God. Chapter 20, Christian reconstructionism and dominionism. The moral reform of society. Dominionism and triumphalism. Notice what he says here. My concern, as I've stated in previous chapters, is with the direction I see Catholics and religious right Protestants taking. In a crisis, trends that are worrisome today can outgrow even our worst 
fears. He's got a section on how Christians came to persecute. He now says this, watch this. I'm reminded of the words of Roland Hegstead that I shared with you in the previous chapter. Persecution, Hegstead said, doesn't arise from bad people trying to make other people bad. It arises from good people trying to make other people good. What is he trying to tell us here? He's trying to say, listen guys, the end time assault is not gonna come from bad people trying to make other people bad, but good people trying to make other people good. This is strange doctrine to us today. This is political to us today. It wasn't in 2007. Please note the year. 2007, because I'm coming back to that year. Now watch this. He has an entire chapter called, not chapter, but segment called Love the Secularists. <laughs> watch this. America's religious right Protestants see themselves involved in a culture war against secularism. And the secularists are fighting the religious right just as hard as the religious right is fighting the secularist. This development troubles me deeply. You guys, 2007, not 2021. I'm going somewhere with this. Don't you tune out. Don't you dare. Don't run away from your eyes right now. Don't run away from the word of God right now. The word of God, the fire of God, may it bring conviction as you see it, as it stands before your face. Because many of you, because of your relationship with the wine of Babylon, and you may not even realize it, but you have turned away. You have pushed Uriah out of your life. You're not interested in this understanding of prophecy anymore. No, 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 it's gotta be something else. Notice what he says. However, the religious rights attack on secularism troubles me for another reason. Jesus commanded his followers to love their enemies, not hate them. 2007, guys. In 2007, nobody would have argued with this book. In 2007, nobody would have said, oh, that's political. No, 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 no. Nobody would have called this man a communist or a secular lover. Nobody would have thought about any of that. He goes on to say, it is impossible to love our enemies and at the same time engage them in a culture war. War promotes hatred, not love. And hating our enemy is the inevitable result of shifting Christ's great commission from winning individuals to reforming society. It is impossible to win people to Jesus when we are at war with them. In 2007, nobody had an issue with this. No one had an issue with this. Check out his epilogue and then we're finished with this book because then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you some things that you need to understand. In his epilogue, he says this, I like wild, foolish predictions. The more wild and foolish they are, the better I like them. Why? Because the wilder and more foolish a prediction seems when it's first given, the more of an impression it will make when it comes to pass. Of course, there's always the possibility that my predictions won't come to pass. In that case, my prediction isn't the only thing that's wild and foolish. I am too. That's the risk anyone takes who makes a prediction. Therefore, it's always wise to be sure that our predictions have a reasonable, rational foundation in the best facts available at the time we make them. Correctly understood, the Bible prophecies provide a sound basis on which to predict the future. In this book, I have shared with you the biblical foundation for the Adventist understanding of Revelation chapter 13. Since when did this become a dispute? Since when? So, that was 2007. The question is, what happened between 2007 and 2021? Four major things happened between 2007 and 2021. 
What were those four major things? 2008, 2012, 2016, and 2020. Y'all need to catch this, guys. What happened between 2007 and 2021? 2008. Something real significant happened that year. 2012. 2016. And 2020. I'll leave y'all to figure out what happened in those years. <laughs> I've heard this thing over the last couple of years, actually, and I hear it quoted from here. Listen to this. These predictions of the infinite one recorded on the prophetic page and traced on the pages of history were given to demonstrate that God is the ruling power in the affairs of the world. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings to fulfill his own purpose. So I've heard that a lot. You know, God sets up kings and we've used it in the context of our nation today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four presidential elections. 2008. 2012, 2016, 2020. And while I will say this, I believe that God allows us, God gives us freedom to choose. He allows us, right? He isn't, he doesn't, you know, say this is going to be your next president. This is going to be your, no, he just, we, we have the freedom to choose, but I want you to check something. There's a reason why God allows the things that he does. You see, you remember when Saul was made king of Israel? I want you to listen what the spirit of prophecy says about Saul. In Saul, God had given to Israel a king after their own heart. As Samuel said, when the kingdom was confirmed to Saul at Gilgag, behold, the king whom you have chosen and you, whom you have desired, comely in person, of noble stature and princely bearing, his appearance accorded with their conceptions of royal dignity and his personal valor and his ability in the conduct of armies were the qualities which they regarded as best calculated to secure respect and honor from other nations. They felt little solicitude that their king should possess those higher qualities which alone could fit him to rule with justice and equity. Reading on, it says, they did not ask for one who had true nobility of character, who possessed the love and fear of God. They had not sought counsel from God as to the qualities a ruler should possess in order to preserve their distinct holy character as his chosen people. They were not seeking God's way, but their own way. Watch this. Therefore, God gave them such a king as they desired, one whose character was a reflection of their own. Their hearts were not in submission to God and their king was also unsubdued by divine grace. Under the rule of this king, they would obtain the experience necessary in order that they might see their error and return to their allegiance to God. So I need you to check this out, beloved, because sometimes God allows things to happen so that our true colors can come out. Because sometimes it's hard for us to see our own colors. It's sometimes hard for us. It's easy for us to see our enemy. It's harder for us to see our inner me. It's easy to look at others and say, yeah, that's the enemy. It's hard to look at ourselves. You see, this is what Uriah, the fire of God, is trying to show us. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. God is showing us, beloved, listen to me. The true colors of God's professed people have come out in these last 16, 17, years it's crazy God is allowing hearts to be 
revealed. Why? So that we can return to God. And you can see, beloved, how preaching what we had always preached has now become controversial. Pastor Myers, you need to preach prophecy and leave politics alone. Seriously, everything I have been preaching to you, it is nothing new, guys. It is what we have always believed. Because we have allowed the things of this world to override our understanding of the word of God, the fire of God, the spirit of prophecy, we now take those things, uh, change our understanding of the word of God to fit our political leanings. You guys, you need to understand this. There's a reason why this book couldn't be published today. Maybe it could be published, but a lot of people, a lot of Adventists would say, oh, that's just speculation. Oh, well, how do you know? Back then, it was true. Back then, the same warning existed. Listen, guys, it's not secularism that's going to be the greatest threat to religious liberty, to religious freedom. It is professed Christians who do not understand the word of God, who are genuine but misguided. How in the world have we picked up the cup of Babylon? How have we gotten into bed with the harlots of Babylon and are now mimicking exactly what they're saying? What in the world? That is an adulterous relationship. That's a David Bathsheba relationship. And when God sends the word of God to you, we have the nerve to be like, yo, how can we get rid of this? How can we get rid of this and anyone carrying the message of Uriah? As many as I love the Bible says, I rebuke and chasten. Listen, we're getting ready to wrap this up. I, I need you to just follow quickly as we, as we go through these last several texts. Check this out. Revelation 12, 15. The Bible says, And a serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. I need you to understand that one of the enemy's weapons against God's people is this flood, is this water. God has given us an undiluted word of prophecy, and Satan is trying to dilute that word. He's trying to cause the woman to be carried away from her firm positions in the word of God. Listen to this. Testimonies for Ministers, page 444. John sees the elements of nature, earthquake, tempest, and political strife represented as being held by the four angels. So she's telling us here that the winds represent, among other things, political strife. God's people are being blown away by the winds of political strife. Why? Listen to this. Why? Here's why. Because Ephesians 4.30 says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. We are grieving Uriah, the fire of God. You understand? I'm using that name symbolically. We are grieving Uriah. Why? Because we are buying into false concepts of apostate Christianity in America, and we think, listen, it's easier to think I'm holy because I stand against abortion and I stand against the evil secularists. It's easy to declare ourselves righteous by looking at that enemy instead of realizing that the enemy is us. The enemy is the inner me. It's easy to claim righteousness by a high and haughty and look at those evil people who don't know God. 
It's harder to think of a concept in which God is rebuking his own people for disregarding his own law. You're talking about secularism. How about why did you stop keeping the seventh day Sabbath? You opened the floodgates of sin. You told people we don't have to keep the commandments. You told people the law of God is done away with. You told people you equited from your pulpits that we don't need to keep the commandments of God. So what do you expect the world to do? What do you expect secular people to do? If they're hearing the law of God doesn't stand, how are you trying to hold them accountable for all oh, the wickedness of our nation? And look at this. They are killing babies. Really? You're breaking the Sabbath. You're breaking my law. Take the beam out of your eye before you speak to them. So, beloved, as Adventists, we should know better. How in the world are we teaming up with Mystery Babylon and echoing their talking points? They think the Antichrist is some evil, secular guy that's going to come and lead this nation to persecute the Christians. We know that's wrong. We know Antichrist is an apostate Christian power. Why are we even giving credence to that? Should we care about the secularists? Absolutely. But you win them by loving them. Not the way that apostate Babylon is doing now. Oh, we're at war with them. The wicked people. We're going to... Come on, guys. Come on, Seventh-day Adventists. Come on. You're getting rid of your riser so you can fight your own battle? This is why Matthew 7, 26, 27 says this. Everyone that heareth the sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Beloved, if Uriah is not your friend, if you're trying to grieve Uriah, get rid of him because you can't stand hearing about helping the poor and helping the needy. Beloved, something's wrong. When your riser comes to you and says, feed the poor, feed the helpless, minister to the oppressed, minister to your oppressed brethren of another color. And you're like, man, get away from me, man. Why are you preaching politics? You're doing the same thing David did to Uriah. I need to tell you something in symbolic language. Please listen carefully. The woman of Revelation chapter 17 the harlot is described in Revelation 13 as the first and second beast. Now, remember this. The kings of the earth commit fornication with the woman. But if we were to flip the symbolic language, listen carefully. The kings of the earth are committing fornication with the first beast and the second beast of Bible prophecy. One, if you understand what I just said, the kings of the earth are committing fornication with the harlot and her daughters, meaning the first beast of Bible prophecy and the second beast. One, just put it in the chat right here. One, if you understand what I just said, the kings of the earth are committing fornication with the beasts of Bible prophecy. And there is a problem with that. What is the problem? Leviticus 2015 if a man lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death and you shall slay the beast. You guys listen to me. Listen to me. When you love the beast of Bible prophecy, more than you love God. When you love, let me say it this way. You know what the beast represents, right? It represents a nation. It represents a nation. And this ultra-nationalism is in symbolic terms, bestiality. You are worshiping the beast. You are in love with the beast. Please don't get me wrong. I am not saying 
that we shouldn't love our country. Yes, we should love our country. What I'm saying is that when you put country above God, it's bestiality, symbolically speaking. Don't twist my words for me, please. It is the kings of the earth committing fornication because our allegiance belongs to God. But for many of us, you see what ultranationalism leads to. Y'all all saw it. And beloved, let me tell you, this Christian right, religious right, a moral majority, whatever you want to call it, the same thing that this book was talking about in 2007, we are seeing happening today. The only difference is back then, as Adventists, we were all on the same page. But for some strange reason, whatever happened in 2008 and in 2012 has led to this just whoa, like this total, and we got caught up in it to where now we don't even really believe what we once preached. End time dilutions. Why? Because we have allowed politics to trump prophecy. I can't preach this now. By the way, I didn't get this preaching from this book. I got it from the Bible. I got it from the spirit of prophecy. But I can't preach this now without people telling me you need to stop preaching through your partisan political lens. Really? Really, y'all? Are you serious? May I suggest that you go back and check out the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and stop feeding people with this false idea that secularism is the greatest threat according to the book of Revelation and according to the book of Daniel. Beloved, the Bible says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Listen to this. I got two more verses and I'm done. Two more statements, one quote, one statement. The Holy Spirit operates the same the world over. When it is received into the heart, the whole character is changed. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Watch this. Watch what happens when Uriah, the fire of God, the spirit of God comes into you and you accept him. You don't try to get rid of him. You accept him. Watch what happens. Old habits and customs, and national pride and prejudice are broken down. When the Holy Spirit is in you, you no longer have national pride. You no longer have prejudice. You no longer practice old habits and customs. Now, if any one of those is still alive in you, God is trying to show it to you through his grace. And perhaps the reason he has allowed the last for elections to go the way that they went, to give us our first black president, and then to give us the follow-up after that. Perhaps the reason for all of this is God is trying to reveal to us what's in our hearts. Maybe he's trying to get us to realize what is hidden inside. And I can tell you this, beloved, the hearts of many of God's people are being revealed. People are seeing characters come out that they did not know were there. I love you. Unfriend me if you have to. Block me if you need. But you guys, I'm not going to stop preaching what we've always been preaching. And do not, please, this is not about politics. This is about the everlasting gospel going into all the world. So stop the foolishness. Amen. If you are angry, you are angry at Uriah. You're not angry with me. 
I am nobody. Your anger, your, oh, why do you, all of that, if you got an issue, you got it with your riser. You got it with the fire of God. Do not grieve the spirit of God. God says it, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And that's what he's doing to us, beloved. God's people, instead of being the head right now, we're the tail. We're nowhere on the scene because we don't even know how to respond. I'm done. God bless you. God open your eyes. God bring conviction to you. May God continue to send the spirit of fire. May God continue to send Uriah to you. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Beloved, we got to get it together because the world is going crazy. And they need answers. And they're not going to hear it from us if we don't get it together. So I'm making an appeal. My appeal is this. Go back. Go back and remember the foundations of this church. Go back and remember the foundation of our message. And stop allowing politics to dilute your understanding of prophecy. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our treatment of the spirit of prophecy over these last several years. Forgive us for straying from what has been clearly taught in the Bible, clearly taught in the Bible. Forgive us for casting doubt upon the spirit of prophecy. Forgive us for casting doubt upon what you have shown us is coming to pass. Forgive us for allowing national pride to overthrow the pride of the kingdom of heaven that we're supposed to have. And that pride is demonstrated in humility. Forgive us for sipping Babylon's wine. Forgive us for lying with the beast. You have forbidden that. Forgive us, Lord. And may we be about your business because the spirit of God dwells in us Help us not to reject Uriah, but to accept Uriah into our hearts that the fire of God may guide us and lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. This message was recorded and produced by Power of the Lamb Ministries. Our mission is to help prepare God's people for the soon coming of Jesus Christ by pointing to the supernatural power of the Lamb of God that gives us the experience of victorious Christian living. For more information on our multimedia resources or inquiries on speaking engagements, please log on to our website at www.powerofthelamb.com. That's www.powerofthelamb.com. Thank you and God bless.